We are continuing in our series as we go through this book verse by verse, with you, which is our common practice. We have a, a three more weeks after today, and we'll be through with this book. Today we'll be looking at uh, chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. And the title of the sermon this morning is, That You May Know. That You May Know. And for our worshipers in training, our key words this morning is confidence, eternal life, and prayer. It was actually probably exactly five months ago today we began going through this book. And it's been a, a privilege and a pleasure for me personally, I think for all the other pastors as well, to be able to study through this book. It has much truth in it to guide us in this day. And um, I have been blessed to go through it, as I hope you have. And so, actually, what the first verse I will be covering this morning, uh, I guess let me back up and say, I think after last week's sermon and after the text that we covered last week, verses 6 through 12, John has actually wrapped up the body of his letter. Um, all of the didactic teaching that has been going on, the instructions uh, that he has been giving um, as we've been going through them, he actually wrapped them up last week. And as we look at the first verse that I will be looking at today, verse 13, we, this will actually be a summation of the entire book, of what his purpose was in writing this book. Uh, we've actually alluded to it several times over the past few months that it is the key verse of the whole, of the whole epistle. Um, but we will be looking at it this morning. And then um, the next two verses that I'll cover after that, verses 14 and 15, will re- really be like a postscript. You know, like when you write a letter and then you finish it, then you say, well, I've got to add one more thing, P.S. <laughs> That's what we'll be doing over the next two or three weeks is kind of a, a postscript. Not, not that this, these things are unimportant. These things are very important that we'll be looking at over the next few weeks. But it kind of, it kind of follows in that, in that way of writing, that he is summing up his, his entire purpose of writing this letter in this one verse, in verse 13. And then we will be, begin verse 14 and 15, talking about the, the, actually the doctrine of prayer. And that's what we'll be focusing on this morning for the most part and next week um, as we go in further into the verses. I want to back up and read the first four verses of the book in chapter 1. Uh, to kind of, since this is, since what I'm saying, verse 13 is kind of like what we call an epilogue or a completion or a summation, I want to go back and look at the introduction, the prologue of the book, um, of what John was accomplished, trying to accomplish, and see how that fits together. We kind of bookend the whole thing this morning. So I want to start reading verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And as we talked about, if we go back and we remember what we talked about in those first four verses, John was setting the stage of his entire epistle by grounding it in the person of Christ. And we have thoroughly covered the person of Christ through the past five months and what it means to believe in Christ and and what it means to be a true Christian. And so one of the first things he says as a purpose for writing, he says that we write these things so that our joy 
may be complete. Now, who doesn't want joy? I want joy. Sometimes it eludes me, not because it is not there. It's because my sin keeps me from it. And so that's one of the things I hope you have been challenged with over the past five months. That first and foremost, that you, if you are a true Christian, you are assured in your salvation. You have checked off all of those litmus tests and says, yes, I see some of the signs of life that you have been talking about in me. And so hopefully you have been assured in your salvation. Maybe there are some who have heard these messages who have been confirmed that maybe they did not know Christ. Uh, they were banking on some past profession, but the, the, the evidence of their life has not necessarily pointed to that there, there is actually a new birth. And so the hope, my prayer and our prayer jointly has been that the Holy Spirit has been taking His Word and sending it out and accomplishing exactly what He sent it out to do. And so today I want to begin by reading uh, our text, which will be verses 13 through 15. And keep in mind, I'm just going to look at verse 13 first by itself, and then we'll go into verse 14 and 15. And the outline that I'm going to be following is in verse 13, we will be talking about the certainty of eternal life. The certainty of eternal life. And it has a prerequisite, and it also has a promise. And then verses 14 and 15, we will be looking at the certainty of answered prayer. And that, too, has a prerequisite and a promise. And so let's begin reading in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And so that will be our text this morning. So let's primarily focus first on verse 13 and talk about the certainty of eternal life. John says, I write these things to you. There again, his purpose clause. I, I, this is one of the reasons I am writing to you. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, we have to ask ourselves, what things are you talking about, John? You said, I write these things. What things? Well, in the immediate context, he is most certainly referring to verses 6 through 12, which Pastor Nick preached on us last week. The testimony that God has given concerning his Son, Jesus Christ. That is, exact, that is one of the main things he's talking about here is that he's saying based on that, based on, on the, who the person is of Jesus Christ, who he is, those of us who believe in his name know that we have eternal life. But I believe he's also referring to the broader, broader context of the entire letter. John is essentially stating in one sentence the main purpose that he has written this letter. And this is very similar to the summation of his gospel uh, we've read it a couple of times in past sermons. Verse, uh, the, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 31. This is one chapter over from the last chapter. But, but Jesus says, or John says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. You see the similarities? I write this Gospel of John to you, who do not know Jesus Christ, so that you may believe that He is who I say He is. He is the Son of God, primarily written to the Jewish nation. Who were The Jewish nation was the ones who Christ came to first, and they rejected Him. And so John, is, his purpose of writing his gospel was to convince his brothers, his brother Jews, that Jesus was the Christ. And he says 
in the end of his gospel, I write this gospel to you so that you may believe. We see John the Evangelist coming out. He's proclaiming the good news of the gospel to the lost Jews, his brothers, so that they may believe as he has. We see this preeminently in the great commission that Matthew wrote at the end of his gospel. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you. These are Christ's words. We see the twofold purpose of the gospel. It is to, is to evangelize the lost, but it is also to disciple those who believe. The gospel doesn't end at belief. It, it continues on throughout life. And so we see John beginning his ministry way back as he wrote his gospel as the evangelist John. He's proclaiming the good news to lost people around him. And now as he gets towards the end of his life, many, many years later, he's writing to an established church of believers who have been racked by false teaching by the Gnostics who are, who are shaking them at their core, making, causing them to disbelieve and wonder if some of the things that they have believed in are true. And he's saying here, Now I write these things to you who already believe. Why? So that you may know that you have eternal life. Because that's where eternal life comes from necessarily, is just simply believing in the Son of God. And we've covered that very heavily throughout this epistle, so I'm not going to go into detail on that. But notice the prerequisite. That's the promise that you can know. Hopefully that's one of the things that the Holy Spirit has been drilling into you as we've been going through this. Those of you who are true Christians, that you have come to a place to where you do know for certainty that you have eternal life because that will pay huge dividends for you. You know, a Christian who is tossed to and fro, constantly wondering whether or not he's in right favor with God, is no use to anybody, much less himself. He is not grounded. He is he's definitely not going to have the joy that John talked about in verse 4 of chapter 1. And so it is extremely important that we, that we understand this, this issue of assurance and we, are, we come to a place in our mind that we fully do understand and know without certainty that we are a born-again believer in God. And so that is one of the things that John is trying to accomplish here in this verse. But, he, but he, here again, he adds a condition, a prerequisite. I write these things to you who believe. Believe. What is belief? Faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who is, what does it mean to believe in the name of the Son of God? Everything that that name represents, we've talked about that. A name represents who you are. And so whenever Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we know all that's wrapped up in that. He is the Messiah, the promised Messiah of the Jews of the Old Testament that was going to come and deliver them from their sin. And so John is saying, you believe in Him and who He is and what He did on the cross on your behalf and all that's wrapped up into that and knowing that by placing our faith in Him, we are saying in essence that I have nothing to bring to heaven in my hand that will get me through into heaven. I have nothing but my own righteous, unrighteous, filthy rags to offer God. And so there is nothing for me to bring to the courts of heaven and demand justice or, or, or mercy from God. What will I get? I will get nothing but justice and wrath. And so by believing and putting my faith in Jesus Christ, I am saying that He is the shepherd who has saved my soul from the wrath of God. It is by His blood on the cross and that alone that I can enter into the courts of heaven. I am justified and made righteous in God's sight. And so by believing in that, placing your faith in that, and we've talked about that, what does it mean? What does it mean to believe? It means to obey. It means to love others. It means to love God. And so all of those things are wrapped up in the big word of belief and faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's what John is doing here. He's summing up 
in one sentence here the whole purpose of the letter is so that you may know, so that those of you who do believe, you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that you, may, you know that you have eternal life. And one thing I want, to see, want us to see here is that when he says that we have eternal life, it's a present tense verb. He says you have it right now. It's not something that you look forward to upon your death. It's not something that you look forward to if Christ is, was to return today that we would then begin to experience eternal life. No, John is saying that you may know that you have eternal life now, here in the present. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, you have entered into eternal life. You already have eternal life. The Greek actually reads, you may know that life you have eternal. So really eternal is kind of just, just an added word to it. We don't really have to say eternal life because when the Bible talks about life, it is always in the aspect of it being eternal life. You see what he's saying? Life in the sense that the Bible uses it, in the, in the sense that Jesus Christ talks about it, is life that lasts eternally. Life referring to the principle of life in the spirit and the soul, but most notably referring to the life that only a believer or a child of God has. Because keep this in mind, all humans are eternal creatures in the sense that our spirits will exist forever. Everyone who has ever been born in this world has an eternal spirit who will continue on after death. But only the Christian, only the Christian that the Bible describes, only the Christian is said to have eternal life. Those who right now are experiencing the full wrath of God upon their sin in hell are, are not alive as the Bible says it. They are existing. They are eternally existing, but they do not possess life because the Bible doesn't describe that. It describes it as death. And so it has to be linked to the person of Jesus Christ because Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He describes himself as the life. In the, the verses I read a while ago in, um, in 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. So you see, life is a synonym for Jesus. When the Bible talks about life, it's talking about Jesus. And only those who are attached to Jesus have that life. But the thing that we can rejoice over today is that not just the saints in heaven that are there uh, in heaven with Christ now, they're not the only ones who have this life. We have that life this morning. That life that, that, that it talks about that is fully recognized and realized in heaven because we will then be separated from this sinful body. But nonetheless, we still have that life in us. It is going to continue with us in heaven. It is eternal. It has already begun. And so I want you to, I want you to be clear on that this morning. I want you to go away with this idea that, that, we, that we can be assured. Because I think a lot of people sometimes wonder, well, maybe that's dangerous. You ever struggled with that? You ever struggled with the, the, the tension there that you say, well, if I know right now, if I am fully convinced right now that I am a child of God, 
then maybe I'm going to stray away. Maybe I, that, will, that will not give me the impetus to continue to believe, to continue to love God, to love others, to obey His commands. But the Bible, that, that concept is foreign to the Bible. That is, our, that is us bringing our logic into the Bible itself. That concept is foreign to the Bible because John has been painstakingly, overly killing the point that you can be assured that you have eternal life. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing for you to know that your destiny is, is sealed in heaven, that Christ right now is ruling and reigning in heaven. He's creating a place for us, and He's there waiting to bring us to Himself at some point in time. And so it does not lead us into a life of licentiousness, as some people may claim to be. It leads us to the opposite. It leads us to a life of thanksgiving and love for God, which, as we've learned, leads to a love for others. Right? Amen? And so I want you to be cemented in that point today that it is a good thing that we know, that we are assured that we have eternal life because that is where the source of our joy is going to come from. That is where the impetus for our, our obedience is going to come from because our obedience must be grounded in the love of God or it is not real obedience. It's simply morality. There's a difference. Our obedience must be grounded in a love for Christ and for His glory in order to be true biblical obedience. And so John here is saying that he's writing these things so that to us who believe, who, those of us here today who believe in the name of the Son of God, that, you, that we may know that we have eternal life. And now what I'm about to say next from verses 14 and 15 flows out of that. That is the foundation that builds on what we're going to talk about next. Verses 14 and 15. And the, the outline point for that is the certainty of answered prayer. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know He hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. So this is talking about prayer. What does prayer do? There's a lot of confusion over this. There are some Christians today who say that prayer changes God's mind. There are other Christians that say, no, prayer changes things. It changes the way things are. And then there are other Christians that say, no, prayer changes you, changes me. Well, which is it? Does God's mind get changed by prayer? Or do things get changed by prayer? Or do we get changed by prayer? What is it? What, is, what, is it, what does the Bible teach about this? Well, the first thing we have to know right out of the gate, in prayer we do not change God's mind. That would be the most frightening thought that I could, that I could ever have to realize that I could change God's mind. That my individual, finite, limited wisdom would be greater than the, than the infinite all-knowing, all-wise God of the universe. And so we have to realize right out of the gate that prayer, whatever it does, whatever it accomplishes, it does not change the mind of God because God is all-wise and His will is always done. His will is perfect. And so we have to get that aside right out of the gate. We do not change God's mind when we pray. But does prayer change things? Well, not technically, because who is it that changes things? God. 
And so we have to establish that it is God is the one who makes things happen, not our prayers necessarily in and of themselves. He may use prayer in his purposes of God changing things, but it's not necessarily the prayer itself that makes God change things. Well, does prayer simply change us? Well, not necessarily. Some people would say all prayer does is bend us to God's will. Well, that is true. Prayer does bend us to God's will. We do learn God's will in prayer. Our hearts are conformed to say yes to the Lord in, his, to the Lord in prayer, but that is not all prayer does. In prayer, we don't, necess- we don't change God's mind and we don't change things by ourselves, nor do we merely come in line with God's will. In prayer, we do become God's instruments to affect His will. Let me say that again. In prayer, we become God's instruments to affect His will. And thus, in His grace, God ordains to work out His plan with the use of our prayers. That's what happened to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. You remember the context of Daniel there? The Jews are in captivity in Babylon. And they had been, it had already been ordained years earlier by Jeremiah. They were going to spend 70 years in captivity. And now they're captivity and they're coming to the end of that. And what, is it, what does Daniel do? What does he begin to do? It says he was reading in the books of Jeremiah that they were coming to the end of those 70 years. So, you know, if we were thinking about that, well, why do I need to pray about that? God said he's going to take us out of captivity. What do I need to pray, pray for? He's going to do it. I believe he's sovereign. Why pray? But what did Daniel do? Did he become fatalistic? No, he prayed. He prayed for God to deliver them and to fulfill his promise that he has said. And through that prayer, if you read Daniel 9, we get the promise of the coming Messiah. The future promise of the coming Messiah was God's answer to Daniel. And so was it contingent on Daniel's prayer? Was it because God said, oh, I'm so glad he prayed that because I didn't know what I was going to do if he didn't pray for the Messiah to come. No, that was God's foreordained plan from the beginning. But he used Daniel's prayer to, num- to first and foremost, to, re- to bring the captivity to an end and to bring the, the, the captives back to Jerusalem, but also to bring the Messiah himself. And so we see here that that is what the Bible in general talks about prayer. And so let's look at that, what John is talking about here as he is talking about prayer, because again, he gives us a promise and he gives us a prerequisite and a condition. I'm going to look at the The promise first. He says there in verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. There's a lot in that, and we're going to go through that. When we pray, the promise here, and in a nutshell, when we pray, God hears us, and we have the request that we ask of him. Now, John has already brought up this idea of having confidence in prayer in an earlier verse in chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. He says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. That's what John said back in chapter 3. And here he's just repeating the same thing for emphasis. He's saying prayer is not optional for the child of God. It is absolutely essential because if you do not pray, you are not living by faith in God. If you do not pray, you are trusting in yourself, which is exactly how the world lives. That's how the world operates. We trust on our own abilities, our own knowledge and wisdom. 
And so one of the things that John is going to be showing us here, that that is not at all what we do as Christians. As Christians, we, we rely on our sovereign Heavenly Father to fulfill His will in our lives. And He does that primarily through prayer. So let's look at this promise. Let's look, John shows us five things that we can look at, we can glean from this promise of answered prayer. Number one, we should have confidence when we approach God in prayer. That's what he says right out of the gate, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have. Our confidence is in God Himself. It is never in ourselves, but rather it is grounded in Christ. After reminding us of our sympathetic high priest in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews is talking about Christ, but then he says in verse 16 of chapter 4, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our confidence is never in ourselves. It is in God and Christ Himself and the finished work of Christ on the cross, whose blood gives us to the access to the very throne of God. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. We have confidence. We have boldness to enter to the throne of grace now through the finished blood of Christ, through the spilt blood of Christ. We have confidence, assurance, The second thing we see here is that we must come into His presence when we pray. That's what John says. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. Toward Him or before Him, some of your translations may say. Prayer is not just mumbling through a list or repeating uh, uh, some rote formula. You know, we see that in so many religions today where people are praying, but they're just going through their liturgy of just just these rote prayers that they have learned to do and they don't, they're not accomplishing anything. And so our prayer, our prayer as Christians, we know that we are coming before Christ, before God Himself. We are coming into His presence. Again, that's what the writer of Hebrews was saying. We have confidence to enter the throne, of, to approach the throne of grace, which is where He is. Prayer is coming before the living God, humbling ourselves in His presence. If we have not come before God, we have not prayed. That goes without saying, right? Where are we looking for our answer to come from? It's coming from God who is on His throne right now, ruling and reigning. And so we must come into His presence with confidence. The third thing we see here is that we come confidently into His presence and ask. We ask. Just a couple of verses to reiterate the importance of just simply asking in prayer. James in chapter 4, verse 2 and 3 says, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, there's a lot in that to reason why what you ask for, and we're going to get into that a little bit more in this particular text, but the main thing I want you to point out here, James says you do not have because you do not ask. It's that simple. We must come before God with our petitions our supplications, we must ask for the things that God has, 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 has put into our hearts. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. So you see, all those verbs, ask, seek, find, knock. Ask, seek, knock, then you find. That's what he's saying. He's clearly, everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. So God's just not going to come answer prayers that we never ask Him for. 
That's what he says very clearly. It is, but it is through our prayers that he affects his will in our life. And so we must ask. We must come to him with our supplications and pour those out before him in confidence and in his presence. We need to be sure to ask, but not assume. But we need to ask with the proper motives that our request would, would further God's purpose and glory in our lives. The fourth thing we see here that he's teaching us is that if we, we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. Now, I'll deal with the condition in a moment that, we, that he talks about asking according to his will. But for now, let's just focus on this promise that God hears us when we pray. Since God hears everything and even knows the unspoken secrets of our hearts, John doesn't mean that he hears us audibly. God is hearing the blasphemous cries of the ungodly even at this second. He hears everything. Nothing escapes his all-seeing, all-knowing eye. So what John is saying here is that not that he hears us audibly, but he hears us in a sense that he's hearing us by answering us in a favorable sense. He's saying he hears us favorably by coming to our aid is the sense of what John is trying to teach us here. Now, we've all been at gatherings, maybe, I mean, I, we especially see it in our small group because we have little kids in our small group, and sometimes when the, when the adults are doing, you know, trying to do our thing a little bit after we've done some time with the kids, we let them go play. Well, what do you do when you get a house full of two- and three-year-olds together? Somebody's going to start screaming here in about five minutes. It happens all the time. But one thing that we do notice that when that happens is that whichever child starts screaming, you will immediately see the mother of that child rise up and go. Why? Because the mother has heard the cry of her child. She knows. She instinctively knows that's my child crying. Now we all are there to assist one another and usually we see other people going, but nonetheless the mother of that child is always has an ear opening to the to the cries of their child. We see that happening all the time. And so that's exactly what G, what what John is teaching us here. Our Heavenly Father, who loves us even more than we love our little toddler, hears our cries, hears our prayers. He hears us in a sense that He is hearing us favorably. We see this in Exodus whenever God was speaking to Moses through the burning bush. As Moses, when God called Moses up, summoned Moses up, to the, Moses up to the mountain, and He's speaking to him through the burning bush, He says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And he goes on to tell Moses that he's going to send him to Pharaoh to lead the people out. And so you might say, well, wait a minute. These people have been crying for 400 years. That's how long they were there, 400 years. So did God was God asleep for 399? And I said, okay, I finally woke up and I hear them. No, he's heard them in a sense that he was going to act favorably now towards them. He is sending the deliverer, Moses, into Pharaoh to bring them out. And so that's what, in a sense, that what John is saying here is God hears our prayers. He hears them in a sense that he's going to act favorably towards us by answering them. And we're going to get into We're going to develop it more, so just hold on. And then the fifth thing we see here that John is teaching us is that if we know that he hears us, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. And this is probably one of the greatest ones in this because of what it teaches us. The idea of verse 15, which we get this from, is that we know that we presently have 
whatever we have asked in accord with His will. We presently, right now, we have the request that we have according to His will. We may not actually see it for many years, but it's as good as done. It's as good as done. The Egyptians and the 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 Jews, the Israelites in Egypt, were crying for 400 years. Some of them never got to see the answer to that prayer, that cry. Some of them died in slavery. Many of them died in slavery. But nonetheless, every one of them, and when God is sending Moses in to deliver them, he is answering the first generation of prayers that have been coming up to him. He has answered them. He didn't necessarily answer it in their, in their timing because they did not see it. But nonetheless, he effectually worked through their prayers to accomplish his will. And they have what they request. Abraham prayed for a son and God promised to give him that son. But it was 25 years before Abraham held Isaac in his arms. 25 years. There is much in Scripture about waiting on God. So we would be mistaken to think that God is promising that if we just pull the prayer lever of the, you know, the slot machine, that all the goodies are just going to come bursting out of the chute right there on the spot. Sometimes in His purpose and wisdom, God delays the answers to our prayers for years. In another sense, though, He has already granted the request. He has already granted the request is what John is telling us. Usually we should continue praying until the request is actually granted. That's what the Bible teaches us with the parable of the importunate widow We've seen her going to the, the, to, the judge or to the person's house and saying, would you please give me something? Give me this, give me this. And he finally said, okay, because of your insistence of coming to me, I'm going to grant your request. That's what Jesus was teaching us in Luke 18. And so we, can, we continuously pray. We pray and we ask and we plead for things with, from God. But at other times, and there's no hard, fast rule for this, maybe we should stop praying for certain things and began to shift our prayers more towards thanksgiving for what God has already done. That doesn't mean that you necessarily stop after a certain amount of time. There's no rule for that. There's no rule to determine that. We've heard stories of people that prayed for the salvation of loved ones for sometimes 20, 30 years and have actually seen it come to fruition. And so if we're going to give up, then I'm probably not going to last 30 years. Probably three or four or five at the most. I'm going to say, well, obviously you're not elect, so I'm just going to stop praying. But that is not what the Bible tells us to do. God is granting our request because we have them as we pray them here and now. John is telling us that Christians, as Christians, that we can have assurance that God will always answer our prayers. And that confidence flows out of our assurance that we have eternal life. John wants us to be bold and confident that God will hear our prayers. Our confidence is heightened even more as he speaks of them as being answered as we ask them. We have what we ask, he says. Now that sounds like something that some of our Christian friends might take and use as license. I mean, there's some danger there, right? It's like, wait a minute, you're telling me that God's just going to give me whatever I say. Right here, he's going to grant my request right now. Is that what you're saying? No, now we need to look at the condition, the prerequisite. John says in verse 14, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. What's the key words there? According to his will. It's the same thing 
Belief in, the, belief in Jesus as a historical person is not, historic, is not saving belief, right? Because the demons believe in the historical Jesus. It is belief in the name of Jesus Christ and who He is and who that name represents. And so when we're asking for things from the sovereign God of the universe, He's not just there as our cosmic bellhop to just give us whatever our desire wants. That's not what he's in the job to do. But he says, if we ask anything according to his will, which is the key, he hears us. And I just want to give you several verses to, to, to parallel this. Um, verse John 3.22 says, And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. There's a promise. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. And a condition. We, if we keep His command, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And so as long as we're doing the, the, the condition, we're fulfilling the condition, the promise is valid. If we're obeying Him and keeping His commandments and doing what pleases Him, then we can ask whatever we want from Him and we will receive it. Luke 22. This is Jesus in the garden. The night He was betrayed. He's, remember the scene? He's in the garden he's, and He's... And he's sweating drops of blood. The anguish is so great. He's about to go to his death. He's about to be crucified. And worse than that, he's about to be, have, his back, have the Father turn his back on him and pour out his full wrath on the sin of all mankind that he's about to take. And you can imagine the anguish he's going through. And he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so even Jesus modeled this idea that our prayers are not based on what we want. It is based on the will of God and His will for us. Jesus said earlier in John 14, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Does that sound dangerous? But what's the condition? Whatever you ask in my name. Right? What does it mean? What does the name mean? It's Christ, the Son of God. And so whenever I'm asking something by having His name on the signature line of the check, that it must represent who He is. When I sign a check to something, I put my name on it, and the only way that bank will cash that check is if what? That signature is there. Because I'm saying that I authorized this to happen. And so that's the same thing Jesus is saying here. Um, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. I am giving you, in essence, a check. But I have signed it, and the conditions that go with that go with the name that I sign, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And so that gives us the parameters that we work off of, of what we must ask. John 15, if you abide in me, this is Jesus speaking, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Ask whatever you wish. You mean the boat that I want, the new house that I want, the new car I want, the two vacations I want to go on, the millions of dollars that I've been praying for all these time? Is that what you're telling me that I can have? No. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. What does it mean to abide in Christ and have his words abide in me? It means to live like Christ. It means to sacrifice your wants for others, right? Is that not what Christ did? He set aside the glories of heaven to come down to take on human flesh to die for me. He gave up a lot for me. 
And so I can just live luxuriously on earth and ask whatever I want, and he's just going to give it to me? No, that, does, that is not living by, in the way that abides in him. And my words are not abiding, or his words are not abiding in me if I have that mindset. And then Jesus taught his disciples, asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And the first thing he said, our Father who art in heaven. That's the first thing we do in prayer, right? We exalt God. We exalt the name of God. But then he goes quickly into, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How quickly do you think the will of God is done in heaven? Who is in heaven right now doing the will of God? The angels, right? They're God's ministering agents that are, that are doing His will and going out and doing the things of God. And so when God calls an angel to a task, do you think He has to wrestle him out of bed? No. He calls him and that angel immediately comes. And, it, and God's will in heaven is immediately realized because He has commanded it. And so, Jesus, and so the, Jesus is telling His disciples that we pray, Your kingdom come and Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we have some other problems on earth because we're dealing with sinful men. It doesn't have that going on in heaven. But He's giving us the grace and the tools that we can get as close as we can possibly get to that in this life. We can fulfill God's will and help His kingdom come to fruition on the earth now. And we do that primarily. One of the main reasons, ways we do that is through praying for it. Praying that God's kingdom will come and that His will will be done. I want to illustrate this, this point. First, from a, from a character in the Bible, and then I want to illustrate it from a character in church history. First, I just want to invite you to change, turn to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verse 16 and 18. Turn there quickly because then we're going to go back to 1 Kings. So go ahead and get ready to go back there pretty quick. 1 Kings 17 is where we'll be going. James chapter 5, verse 16 and 18. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Keep that in mind now. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the, heavens gave, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Okay? That's the New Testament alluding back to a, a story in the Old Testament. Now let's flip back to 1 Kings 17 and see exactly what happened here with Elijah. Because I think this illustrates the point that John is teaching us here about prayer. First Kings 17, I'm going to read verse 1 of verse 17. Then we're going to flip over to chapter 18, uh, verses 41. So I'll give you a second there to get over to 18. Let me just read chapter 17, verse 1 of First Kings. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, 
As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these seven years except by my word. And so you see here, God has told Elijah to prophesy. He was a prophet to the, to the northern kingdom of Israel. And so he's telling King Ahab, which was one of the most wicked kings Israel ever had, he's saying, I'm going to judge the, the, the land by bringing this drought. So go and tell him that um, it's not going to rain unless you say it's going to rain. And so he does that here in verse 17, or in verse 1 of chapter 17. So then skim down to verse 18. We see that um, three and a half years has gone by. And then God sends um, Elijah back to Ahab to tell him about this rain. He says, And Elijah said to Ahab, this is verse 41 of chapter 18, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black and cloud, with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. So you see what's happening? God told Ahab through the prophet, um, through the prophet Elijah three and a half years earlier, there's going to be a drought on the land, and I'm, going to, I'm proclaiming it. It's not going to happen. The only way it's going to rain is if I say it's going to rain. Then he disappears for three and a half years, hides out. And then God sends him back and says, okay, now I'm about to reverse that and we're going to bring the rain. But notice what Elijah does. He tells Ahab, go up and drink for there is the sound of the rushing of rain. It's not raining yet. It hasn't started raining yet. But he's telling him, I'm about to pray for God to open up the heavens and it's going to be like the rushing of rain. You ever heard a torrential? We've had some lately. Torrential downpours. I mean, it sounds like the, the floodgates have opened, right? Well, that's what he's saying is going to happen. And he's saying, and then he tells the servant, okay, I'm, I've gone up and I've prayed now that it's going to rain. And Elijah sends his servant and says, okay, go look and see what's happening. And the servant said, well, ain't nothing happening. I don't see anything. Still sunny, white clouds, there's nothing. Keep going back seven times. And then he says, what happens? This little, one little black cloud rises up out of the sea. That's the little cloud that you said are going to cause the rushing of rain? Yeah, that's it. And then what happened? It dumped. It rained 10 inches, I guess, if I, maybe more. But you see what he did? Elijah was a man who knew that his prayers, and this is going back to James, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man affects much, has great power when it is working. And so Elijah had this expectancy and this understanding that he was praying in the will of God. And he prayed for the things exactly the way God wanted them, and God blessed through it. And he knew it was going to happen. He didn't have to doubt it. He knew. He even sent his servant to say, be prepared, it's coming. Tell Ahab to get out of here, because if he doesn't, he's going to get his chariot stuck in the mud. He needs to get on down the road. And that's what he did. And he expected that God was going to answer his prayer, and God did. And so Elijah, is, that's where we see why James uses Elijah as an example for fervent prayer has great power because Elijah showed it. Another example in church history was a man who lived in England named George Mueller. He was greatly used by God to build orphanages. 
and 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 he, I don't, I forget the exact count, but it was thousands and thousands of young children in England who were blessed to live in his orphanages. And one of the things that he would never do, he would never ask for handouts. He would never ask for people to give money towards his orphanages or anything. He everything he got, he simply went to God in prayer. And there's a couple of accounts that um that they have about him as it pertains specifically to prayer. One of them has to do with he was faced with a situation where he didn't have any food for the next morning to feed the orphans for breakfast. Let me read this. Dr. A.T. Pearson was the guest of George Mueller at his orphanage. He says, One night when all the household had retired, he, Mueller, asked Pearson to join him in prayer. He told him that there was absolutely nothing in the house for next morning's breakfast. My friend tried to remonstrate with him and to remind him that all the stores were closed. Mueller knew all that. He had prayed as he had always prayed, and he never told anyone of his needs but God. They prayed, at least Mueller did, and Pearson tried to. They went to bed and slept, and breakfast for 2,000 children was there in abundance at the usual breakfast hour. Neither Mueller nor Pearson ever knew how the answer came. The story was told the next, told next morning to Simon Short of Bristol under pledge of secrecy until the benefactor died. The details of it are chilling, but all that need to be told here is that the Lord called him out of bed in the middle of the night to send breakfast to Mueller's orphanage. And knowing nothing of the need or of the two men at prayer, he sent provisions that would feed them for a whole month. He prayed and God blessed. Here's another account of, a, of another time with George Mueller. He's on a boat and, he's, and he's, they're encountering a fog bank in the middle of the Atlantic. Charles Inglis, the well-known evangelist, relates the following remarkable incident. When I first came to America 31 years ago, I crossed the Atlantic with the captain of a steamer who was one of the most devoted men I ever knew. And when we were off the banks of Newfoundland, he said to me, Mr. Inglis, the last time I crossed here, five weeks ago, one of the most extraordinary things happened that has completely revolutionized the whole of my Christian life. Up to that time, I was one of your ordinary Christians. We had a man of God on board, George Mueller of Bristol. I had been on that bridge for 22 years and never left it. it was, I was startled by someone by tapping me on the shoulder. It was George Mueller. Captain, said he, I have come to tell you that I must, that I must be in Quebec on Saturday afternoon. And this was Wednesday. It is impossible, I said. Very well, if your ship can't take me, God will find some other means of locomotion to take me. I have never broken an engagement in 57 years. I would willingly help you, says the captain, but how can I? I am helpless. Let us go down to the chart room and pray, Mueller says. I looked at this man and I thought to myself, what lunatic asylum could this man have come from? I never heard of such a thing. Mr. Mueller, I said, do you know how dense this fog is? No, he replied, my eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. He went down on his knees and he prayed one of the most simple prayers I thought to myself that would suit a children's class where the children were not more than eight or nine years of age. The burden of his prayer was something like this. O oh Lord, if it is consistent with thy will, please remove this fog in five minutes. You know the engagement you made for me in Quebec for Saturday. I believe it is your will. When we had finished, I was going to pray. But he put his hand on my shoulder and told me not to pray. Mueller did that. 
He says, there is no need for whatever for you to pray about it. Wait a minute. First he said, you do not believe that the reason he told him not to pray is because he said, you do not believe that God will do it. And second, I believe he has already done it. And there is no need whatever for you to pray about it. I looked at him and George Mueller said this, Captain, I have known my Lord for 57 years and there has never been a single day that I have fallen, I have failed to gain an attendance with the king. Get up, Captain, and open the door and you will find the fog is gone. I got up and the fog was gone. On Saturday afternoon, George Mueller was in Quebec. And so you see, both of these instances come from a man who was convinced that as long as he was praying in the will of God, no matter what it is, no matter how silly it might seem, God would answer his prayer. And he lived in expectancy of that. The same way that Elijah exercised his expectancy that God would answer his prayers. And so that's what John is teaching us here in this text this morning. And this is what I want to challenge us with in closing, is that do we live with God and commune with God with that same expectancy? Do we pray in a sense, do we come boldly with confidence before God and ask for the things that we, would, that we, we, we desire to ask of Him? Do we ask with confidence? And do we know that He hears us? And do we know that He hears us favorably because if we're doing all these other things, if we're asking Him in His will and praying for the things that we know will be a part of His will that would please Him, we can know that He hears our prayers. But the key is, are we asking? And I've been really convicted during this week as I study this because the answer for me is, no, I have not. I have not been doing this. I have not been asking God and expecting God to do great things with me or with this church. And maybe the reason we're having so many problems in this church is that we're not doing that. Maybe we don't live with expectancy. Maybe we don't think God can do great things with us. Or maybe we think we've got it figured out. And that we just need to go on this route because it makes sense to us. And this is the way it's always been done. But maybe we just need to back up and first and foremost determine whether or not we are praying in the will of God and examine our own lives and see Am I sacrificing for Christ? Am I sacrificing for others? Am I being obedient to His commands? Am I loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Am I loving others based off of that same sacrificial spirit? Am I putting others' interests above myself? And if we have not been doing that, then probably we can't pray in the will of God because we're not living in the will of God. And so my challenge for us this morning as a church, as individuals and as a church, is that we need to be asking God with great expectancy that He will do great things through us. Here, amongst us, but also broader in the kingdom. Because that's what we ask us to pray for, right? Your kingdom come. Not these four walls get filled up because we want to be a big church that has big programs and a lot of people that we can go do fun things with. No, those things are good and fine, but the kingdom is bigger than that. The kingdom is about people out there who live right over there and right over here and right over here 
who right this second are sitting in their living rooms doing whatever, lost as they can be. And we were right there with them not too long ago. And the kingdom means that they can be a part of that because we have the good news of that kingdom that we can bring to them. And so we need to be praying with expectancy that God will use us to do those great things to get out there. We had a great discussion in Sunday school about the church. I, if you weren't there, I highly encourage you to come next week because so, we're talking about some great things. We're defining what the church is and what it's supposed to do. You know, but, I, but listen, I'm not foolish. I know that there are problems going on in this church right now. People are leaving. People are sending letters. So why are those things happening? I don't know. Maybe it's because we haven't been praying for God to do His work amongst us enough. And if we do that more, maybe we will realize that unity that we're grasping for, that we want so bad, that peace that we want so bad. Maybe that's the missing ingredient, that we just have not been asking God for it. And so I want to encourage you this morning with all the encouragement of the text before us is that God answers those prayers. And I, as one of your pastors, have been failing miserably to ask him, and I'm going to change that. And I ask you to join me in changing, helping me change that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the promises that you have given us that are so rich. And Lord, it is only because we are feeble and weak and sinful that we don't avail ourselves of your great promises. I thank you for the forgiveness that constantly comes through Christ, that we are forgiven every day and that we can never remove ourselves from that. We thank you for that, Lord. That is the foundation we stand on. And Lord, I pray for this church. I pray, God, that you would quicken us all to cry out to you with fervency and expectation that your kingdom will come and that your will, be, your will will be done here in Rincon and here at Ephesus just as it is in heaven. God, I pray for that so bad this morning. I want that so much, Father, that you would help us to do that. Give us the grace to cry out to you in prayer and to realize, Lord, that you are, you are excited and joyful to answer our prayers. It is how you work out your will. And so I thank you, God, that you do that, that you use us in so many ways to affect your kingdom in this community. Help us to do more. Because, God, you, your blessings are infinitely, infinitely there. Lord, we can never exhaust them. And sometimes we live as if we have exhausted them. And so I pray, God, that you would forgive us, that you would convict us where we're wrong. Forgive us, Lord, and just give us the grace to reach out to you and to be a vital part of your kingdom work here in this church and this community. Bless us with unity and love for each other, Lord, that is grounded in love for Christ. And it's in his sake and for his glory that we pray. Amen.